5. As we have just begun a look at the Sermon on the Mount, and, uh, you know, just think about it, uh, this week about this is a tremendously, uh, <clears throat> well, if you consider it through chapter 7, it's a, it's a long passage, and there's just so much in it. And we'll be spending some time, we won't be flying through, uh, these, uh, because it's the New Testament, and you don't tend to fly through those anyway, but especially this, because this is kind of the epitomizes all the preaching that Jesus did. I mean, there were other things he obviously did, but this was probably something that he uh, preached many times. And so, just uh, a lot. I mean, and pray for me because it, there are a lot of not not all the uh, passages are easy, and there's certainly different opinions on some of them, and. Uh, Help me to be uh, clear and to be accurate in my uh, presentation of these truths as well, all to the glory of God. Last week we kind of did an introduction to the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. We saw the Sermon, the Sermon on the Mount is a description of those who are in the kingdom. It is not a way to enter the kingdom. We'll say a little bit more about that today. It is uh, descriptive. It is not prescriptive, right? It is not uh, a way to do something. It is uh, Jesus describing those who are in the kingdom. The Old Testament never hints of more than one kingdom. And so, uh, as we, uh, you know, in other words, in prophecies, there was always this kingdom the Messiah was going to come and set up. When Jesus comes along and says the kingdom is, is about to begin, we take that at face value. There's only one kingdom foretold, and Jesus set that up while on earth, and of course reigns as he ascended on high and sat down upon the throne. There is not a Jewish kingdom coming along with this kingdom later. There is just the kingdom. There, there's not two kingdoms. There's one kingdom. And there's going to be a fuller manifestation of it in glory, obviously. But as Paul says, we live at the end of the ages. And so then the kingdom is within us. It is not seen in borders and governments. It is to be seen in the Christians, but especially in the local church. Its final form will be the eternal state of the new heavens and earth. And then we, we talked about, <clears throat> which goes along a little bit with uh, how we're going to approach this sermon. The new covenant standard of godliness is much higher than the old covenant. Now when I say that, that's, there's a lot to unpack there. But uh, the, the God standard has not changed. Holiness has always been holiness. And even as I had Jeff read <clears throat> in the Old Testament, uh, the Lord made it very clear that Service that true service of worship had to come from the heart, or uh, we'll deal a little bit with that later. <clears throat> However, you can live under the old covenant and not be a believer. The uh, that's why so much of the old covenant is outward laws. Of course, there was a lot of that as typology and, and important for that. But you could be an unbeliever and you could uh, offer your sacrifices at the right time and you could stay in the land. But now, they, and you could be in, a, so you could be in the old covenant and not be saved. And of course, part of the problem with the Presbyterians, with the, you know, our Presbyterian brothers, those who are covenant theologians, they think nothing's changed. So they think that you could be in the new covenant and still be an unbeliever. And that's why they baptize babies because they don't feel like you have to be regenerate to be in the new covenant. But we, uh, taking again the New Testament at face value, would understand then that. The, uh, the, the, the New Testament believer in, under, in the New Covenant 
because he's a believer, we would understand that the, his standards of holiness and godliness are going to be elevated. In the Old Testament, you had people who were not saved, who could obey to some degree the law. And God would, would, would be okay with that in the sense of leaving them in the land. But not so in the New Covenant. We are, as believers, expected to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're, we've been changed from within. The Old Testament uh, Jew had, was not changed from within, except for the remnant. And so that maybe helps us understand a little bit about, as we approach this, when Jesus says, you've heard it said of all, but I say unto you, uh, he, we, God expects more of believers, which, which we would expect that to be the case. And so anyway, that's how I'm going to be approaching uh, much of this. And so today we want to look at, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we have spent much time trying to put this sermon in its context. It is for the kingdom of Christ uh, that is being set up in the church age, the, the things that Christ says here. Therefore, it is for us now. We, we, we quoted some uh, who believes that the, um, the, the the things Christ says here are for the Jews of the of the uh, future kingdom. They even believe it's for Christians, and of course, that's what happens when you don't understand the kingdom is now. But we don't believe it's later. We believe it has started now, and it heightens what we have learned in the Old Testament by stressing. More so the spiritual nature of true godliness, physical kingdoms, and taste not, handle not, and the fleshy ways of worship were never meant to be the best way to worship the Lord. The blood of bulls and goats were required in the Old Testament, but they were always to picture true sacrifice and true worship, and of course the Lord Jesus himself. So it describes, this, this, uh, describes and directs those who have already entered the kingdom, Christ is not telling us how to enter the kingdom. <clears throat> and so just like you, in the Old Testament, you were more or less born into the Old Covenant. You had to be circumcised after you were born. But if you were born from Abraham, you uh, were entered into that kingdom So uh, under that covenant. And so in the New Covenant, we are also born into it. Now again, unlike our New Covenant, or our Covenant theologian brothers, we don't believe that that's physical birth because as Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born again to be in the new covenant. And so you're born physically in the old covenant. In the new covenant, you're born spiritually. But God regenerates you and by faith you enter the kingdom of God. <clears throat> and so we will see Jesus say that he explains the old covenant and he fulfills the old covenant and he supersedes the old covenant because the old covenant look forward to the new covenant. It was how the new covenant came into existence. It was not an end in itself. So we are living, that's why Paul says we are living in the consummation of the ages. It doesn't get any better than this until we receive our glorified bodies in the eternal state. And so the New Testament takes precedent over the Old Testament. And so we must expect that things have changed in some ways and that we are com- what we, they were commanded to do in the Old Testament is not always going to be the same thing as we are commanded in the New. It's not that God has changed. It's just that we are a spiritual people uh, with more revelation than they were in the Old. And in fact, we find that our obedience is 
to be more concerned with the inner man since we have a fuller measure of the Holy Spirit. Which makes sense because if the inner man is transformed, the outer man must necessarily follow. That's why Jesus could say, you know, by your fruits you shall know them. Because what you do outwardly is one thing, but if it doesn't arise properly from within, then God is not concerned with it. Or at least he doesn't accept it. And that's why later Paul says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, joy, and peace. And so he's trying to keep, trying to show how all these things come in, coming together. We talked a little bit about last week about blessedness, what it means to be blessed. It means to be happy, but in a uh, much more uh, deeper way than just uh, what's happening around you. Sometimes the Bible has a talks about a happiness derived from without, and sometimes a happiness or a joy that is derived from within, an abiding joy and a peace that we have regardless of the outward circumstances. And of course, that's what Jesus is certainly referring to here. Joy now, but perfect bliss in eternity, but a a joy that the world cannot understand, just like a peace that the world cannot understand. Because in the world, their outward circumstances is pretty much all they have. And so as it goes, so goes the inner man. But we know that this outward earth is something that is passing away. And so we, our, our joy in, in our happiness to, to some degree is not uh, dependent upon what's going on around us. So as we look at the Beatitudes specifically, we notice that they are somewhat paradoxical, right? Being poor will make you rich or give you something in some way. Mourning will bring comfort and so off and so on. And the, the kingdom of this world will get that exactly backwards. The nature of godliness is that the more we make life about God and not about our will, the happier we'll be. And the world doesn't get that because the more you make it about self, the more pleasure I've got, the more power I've got, fame I've got, you know, whatever, that's the happier I'll be. But the kingdom of Christ, as he says over and over again, is not about that. The kingdom is the one who serves the best. The more we're satisfied with God, the more we're satisfied with something outside of ourselves, the happier and the more blessed we will be. So it's not that we aren't concerned with our joy and happiness and and, and so forth. But there's the way we get it is not by centering life about on us, but upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this first beatitude reminds us that this kingdom is from heaven, and it will last long after our trinkets have melted away. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. <clears throat> um, Luke 12.15 Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Someone said that true happiness cannot grow out of a cursed earth. It would be inappropriate to meet a hungry person and uh, just uh, give them a sermon or a song. Uh, their their immediate need is, uh, need is, is, is food. And we want to be careful that we don't ignore physical needs and uh, that the, 
the world in general, like, like, you know, we don't want to go around as Christians and just say, well, physical needs mean nothing, only what spiritual matters. Uh, God has put us in this world, and uh, so physical things do matter to some degree. And, and of course, what Christ is, is referring to here is not being poor financially. Uh, that's not the issue. But I, I want to make balance that out to say it doesn't mean that we don't have any concern for the poor or for ourselves in that light. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But this is not saying that being poor financially is more spiritual. And we'll talk about that later on. But that can end up causing us to let others take. That the idea is, you know, because down through church history, some have taken these words and said, well, the most, to be on the most spiritual plane or to be the most godly, the most pious, you've got to just give away everything you've got to become poor. Well, what that ends up being often is, uh, now someone else has got to take care of me because if I give away all my possessions, then what happens? Well, now I need someone to do the same for me. And that's led to a lot of, I think, confusion. Uh, because obviously just not having material things doesn't automatically make you more holy or, you know, more spiritual. And Jesus is not referring to that. More commonly, our temptation is not to give away everything and become poor physically, uh, is that we automatically run to the bank or the doctor or the shrink or to entertainment or to pleasure or to hard work or to social involvement as if these things can take the place of spirituality. You know, the Spirit's work is to help us to know God and to be conformed to His image. And our problem is that, and and this is kind of getting at this idea of being poor, is that we think we've got to have something other than Christ. We've got to have this world. But we read in Proverbs 23, 4, Do not toil to acquire wealth, to be discerning enough to desist, when your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. Wealth can be a great temptation, and to live for it is to miss the point. And we've talked about this when Jesus says, you know, man should not live by bread alone. You, you could not, you could, not just bread, but man does not live by money alone. You know, we have to have material things to live to some degree, but that's not what life is all about. So we realize these things are ours to serve the Lord with. They are not an end to themselves. And it's not surprising that the most popular form of Christianity today is that God wants you to have a lot of things. I recently heard a prayer, I think I was watching a video, I want to say, of of somebody, you know, he sat up in front of a bunch of people, and supposedly the Holy Spirit is telling him about people, there's some needs of, of individuals. And he said, um, God wants you to have a nice house. There's someone here who, God wants you to have a nice house. And he's going to have a special dispensation of financial wisdom come upon you. And a special friend who wants to do something good for you. Well, it's just a, a completely selfish thing, you know, where, you know, something good is going to happen to you today. But, you know, Luke 24, 5 says, And as they were frightened and bowed down their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Of course, this is said outside the, the tomb that was empty. But I like that. Why are you seeking the 
living among the dead. You're not going to find the satisfaction of life, the meaning to life, in the world. It's it's dead. Christians find fulfillment in Christ. And when we try to find it in this world, we're seeking it, the living among the dead. So what these verses are telling us is that what really matters in this life is that all this is passing away, and only what is done for Christ matters in the end. And again, this is really almost part of the of the of, of a um, introduction to the, to all the beatitudes. Life is about Christ, and the, as we'll see today, that the poor in spirit is recognizing your need of Christ. And if you don't have that, you're, you're not going to be happy. You're not going to be blessed. And that's a huge hurdle to overcome. Now, of course, when the Holy Spirit works in a heart, it, it's overcome. But that's why Jesus says the, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God because the more you think you need this world, the less you can think you're going to need Christ. A couple of people that you probably have heard about, no, some perhaps, just a couple of uh, quotes that they made that I think illustrate the problem. Kirstie Alley said, pride is not a sin. What idiot said that? Now, I imagine she, I don't, she's probably never set foot in church in her life. And of course, she's passed away now, so she knows better, but doubt she ever knew much of the Bible. But you see, you see the mentality here. She's not poor in spirit. And then, of course, Ted Turner. Christianity is for losers. There's no gumption. So they just say it isn't worth it. So in his mind, it's people who, when they give up the world, it's because they just are too lazy to go after it. Well, he has no idea what he's talking about. They have gained the world, but as Christ says, they'll lose their own souls unless, of course, the Lord intervenes. And as far as I know, the Lord hasn't intervened in either one of them. Um, another text, which you'll, I want you to turn to, if you would, in Isaiah, which is similar to the one Jeff read in Isaiah chapter 11. I want you to notice as we read this that there's some similarities with the Beatitudes. I think it, there's an application there. Isaiah chapter 11. Now, this is an interesting passage. I believe it's one that describes the kingdom, and, and I think we'll see. A, I'll give you one reason why I believe that. Some, of course, believe it's describing a future kingdom. So there's that. But anyway, I'm going to kind of look at it a little bit differently here. But notice here, starting in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Of course, so clearly this is Jesus coming in his incarnation. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And he sh- and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So clearly this is speaking about him in on earth being filled with the Holy Spirit, and he shall not judge by what he sees as I see, but or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the, for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He shall kill, he, he shall kill the wicked. I believe this is describing his reign on earth and even now. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, the faithfulness, the belt of his loins. Of course, he rules in righteousness. He's a righteous king. 
And then uh, verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. We, we know, of course, there are those who, we've seen probably depictions of this, that believe in a future kingdom age, this, you know, animal, there'll be animals and on earth and they'll be tame. And that this is describing that the removal of sin, although we know sin is not removed in that age, you know, so I'm not exactly sure how that works, but animals are no longer dangerous at least. Um, and okay, you know, and, and I understand that. I was, I was raised uh, like that. I understand that. But I would say, while that is interesting, if there's a future kingdom and the animals are tame, I guess it's interesting, but what's the, who cares? I think it means that under, when Christ rules, and he rules through the gospel, that going forth of the gospel, and he, and what is the, you know, Christ says in this age, go and make disciples of all nations. So if the kingdom is within us and the kingdom is seen in the church and people are being brought into the kingdom, what, to me, what is astounding is the change in the hearts of those who are in the kingdom. And so I would say that when it says the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, those who once prayed now dwell with those who, uh, who they prayed upon. When, when you know Christ, now you don't take advantage of each other. You love one another and you help one another. And so as you read these things, I would look at it more like that. A change that takes place in our hearts, because remember the kingdom is within us in, when Christ reigns. Verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The, the holy mountain, Zion, is a Old Testament uh, often a reference to the church. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. In that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Like again, the cross. Jesus is a signal for the people. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So, um, if you've entered the kingdom, and the reason, reason I read that is I explained is because I think Jesus is describing this great change of those who have entered the kingdom. The effects of the rule of Christ. You empty yourself, you realize that you have nothing and that you need Christ. Notice back in verse 4, you actually, if you haven't turned away from it, that he actually uses two words that are in our text. Meek and poor. Because these are, this is what Christ does in his reign. And so, as I said, these Beatitudes are pronouncements, not probabilities. It is not saying that if you do your best to be like this, you will have a good chance of being happy. I was reading uh, a something that was written for children uh, this week, uh, going through the Beatitudes, and every once in a while, it kind of made the statement that if you do this, this will happen. Because it was seeing a lot of this uh, as something that is a prescription instead of a description of God's people. Now certainly we know that when you obey the Lord and when you are humble and 
and, re- and so forth, you will be blessed of God, but that's not necessarily the, the point of these Beatitudes. We have the opposite of the Beatitudes later on in Matthew 23, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and indulgence. And you see that they are not clean from within, and so they show themselves outwardly, just like God's people show themselves outwardly. So again, let me warn any who are not Christians from thinking that you can please God by trying to have these attributes. And hopefully I'm not speaking to anybody here, but just in case, if you have this idea that somehow you're going to squeak into heaven by being good enough, you've misapplied the scriptures. Do not think that if you are meek, God will give you the kingdom of heaven. You know, for one thing, there are no humble rebels. If you haven't been regenerated, if you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you are, Paul says, an enmity with God. You're a rebel. You're at war with God. You can't, a rebel by nature can't be humble. They are, by definition, anti-submissive. He does not hunger and thirst to know and to live for the king. They live for themselves. That's what they are. So, is ridiculous, it is, it is nonsensical, it is a waste of time to tell a rebel that you've got to quit being a rebel. What you've got to do is, of course, tell, give them the gospel and let God change their hearts, and then they will be a rebel. They will uh, be submissive. And so this sermon is direction for those in the kingdom, while at the same time it certainly has warnings for those who are without. Certainly if you don't see in yourself a heart, that loves what you are reading here, then that should be taken as a warning that something is wrong. If you don't agree with what we see here. So, having said all that, as kind of an introduction to, to the Beatitude about being poor in spirit. What does poor in spirit mean? Literally, we know that the word poor here isn't just someone who is needy. It is someone who has nothing. It is begging poor. And it's important to understand that because I believe it's to be taken spiritually. It is to understand that I have nothing to offer the Lord and I am in need of grace entirely. The widow who had two mites was poor, but she wasn't quite this poor. She had a little to hold on to, a little to boast of, a little to be dependent upon. But if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to come to the realization that there is no Nothing good in me. And of course, you think of Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's what it's saying there. Now, that verse uh, is, is interesting. When I, in growing up, I've heard a preacher, uh, one, one preacher in particular I remember, who used to say that he would explain Romans 3.23. Uh, here you have God's righteousness. Now, if you don't like this, it took me a while to get all this on, on the PowerPoint, so bear with me. But you got God's righteous standard over here, and you got man, and some are better than others. So they're all, you know, some do pretty good, some don't do as good, and but they all fall short. So no matter how good you are, you fall short of God's righteousness. Well, there's an element of truth in all that, but I don't. I think it kind of misses the point. And I think a better illustration of Romans three twenty three is this: you've got God's righteousness over here. 
And you've got depravity of man that only sins. Now, some sin worse than others. God allows some to, to be better than others. But they're all going in the opposite direction. There's nobody getting anywhere near God. They're all going down. And that's being poor in spirit. Understanding that I'm not, well, a little good. I don't have any goodness in me. I need the righteousness of somebody else. Now, some have read Luke's account, which leaves out the spiritual reference and just has poor. And uh, whereas here in our text it has poor in spirit. And so they read Luke as just that Jesus is talking about being poor. We've kind of already referred a little bit to that. So they see him as saying that it's better to be financially poor and that you give up your money now and you'll have heaven later. And, of course, that's, first of all, work salvation. But we take the clearer passages, um, the more explicit and clear passages, to interpret the less explicit. And so Matthew is letting us know that Jesus here is speaking of spiritual poverty. Jesus isn't contradicting himself. He's not saying that financial poorness somehow helps you in the, become enter the kingdom of God. So Matthew lets us know. Uh, so Luke surely, though, does remind us that part of being a Christian will always mean sacrifice in some way. So I, I don't want to divorce it entirely from the idea that Christians, those in the kingdom, many times are poor in relationship to this world. Because we always are going to have to make a sacrifice in some way. Because, you know, whether it be in financial things or friends and family, Christians who have, who deny themselves this world are in essence going to have, not have those things, right? So they're, so that's why it's, it's easy to confuse this and think that being poor is better. No, it's just that often Christians don't have, and that's what Ted Turner saw, is that Christians, by especially real Christians, of course, you know, you got the health and wealth, but he sees this, this, where they don't seem to care with whether they have material things or not, and he sees it as weakness. He doesn't understand that the glory of God, and that's what matters. And if I don't have this world, so what? Because the spiritually blind can't make that distinction. So Christ is talking about this attitude of self-sufficiency and innate goodness. So if being poor is how one gets into the kingdom, or how made is one made godly, what makes one godly, then uh, Jesus would say we need to give to their relief. And down in verse 42, he does say that that's not a bad thing. But but he's not doesn't say it here, right? In verse three, but in verse forty two, for instance, he says, "Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you." Now, that's not necessarily talking about someone who is destitute and poor, but it certainly would fall in that category because poverty is not a good thing any more than being sick is, and that's why we got to understand that Jesus isn't saying that poverty is something good. That's not his point at all. Both of these things are something that, that sometimes God's will for us and can be a source of blessing if we are faithful to the Lord. So 
So surely there's a correlation between those who pursue the world to be rich and those who pursue Christ and gladly give up creature comforts for Christ. In the end, the latter will be satisfied. And I'm not trying to contradict myself, but I'm saying that you, there is an application to being poor in spirit that will that can carry over into this idea of not having things, not having health, not having wealth. It's okay because I know I need Christ, and if I have Christ, that's enough. But Jesus never, uh, he, uh, he was never destitute financially, materially. They had a money, that money bag. They would sometimes give to the poor out of it. So Jesus it wasn't poor in that sense. Now, he did not have a home, to, uh, you know, place to lay his head. He wasn't rich, but they had money. And I think it's important to understand that you're not doing anybody any favors by trying to be poor. If, if it's God's will for you to be poor, then fine and great. That's wonderful. But he's not, Jesus is not saying that being poor is good. Paul exhorts us to work so that we can care for our family and the church and the needy. He says, you know, one of the benefits of having a job is you get to know and give to the church, but you can help those who are in need. But spiritually, what we have to understand, this is what Jesus' point is, is that we have nothing to offer God. We must hold out our hands as beggars for his grace in order to be saved if we're going to please him at all. That's why um, Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And again, I think this is Jesus explaining all this. The, the, the gospel doesn't help anybody who's financially poor. What good is that doing? That's why I said if you see someone who's poor, who's hungry, and you just say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the gospel. You haven't helped him. You, you've kind of, you, you've done him a disservice. He sent me to build up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Again, uh, in the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus never went and told emptied prisons out, told us to empty out prisons. Right? That because it's spiritually talking about those who are poor in righteousness, those who are broken hearted because sin has destroyed their lives. Sin has held them captive as they become slaves to sin. The gospel brings liberty to them. Those who are under Satan's grasp, he delivers us out of Satan's grasp. So that's what he's talking about here. And so Again, when he uses the word poor in Matthew 5, I think that's what he's referring to there. It helps us understand what's going on. That's the context of the effect of the gospel. It's fitting that this is the first condition for blessedness that Christ is talking about because we'll never submit to Christ's cross until we see ourselves as destitute of all goodness. And such a one will never see himself any differently once they're saved. So it's not like we look and say, okay, now that I'm saved, uh, you know, I realize I didn't have anything, but now I'm saved, now I do, and and so now our our attitude somehow changes. But no, we understand our pride and self-sufficiency is just as bad as it ever was, and we need Christ all the more. But now we understand it, we realize it. And so the word spirit reveals that this is how one is is in their heart. 
Many can feign humility and be outwardly self-abasing, but inside they're full of pride and self-worth. And Jesus from the start teaches us that he is concerned with what we truly are in our hearts, not what we're, how we're seen by others necessarily. And this was certainly taught in the Old Testament, that Jesus only accepts obedience that is from the heart. That's the kind of obedience that will always be seen as true obedience. That Even if, if you were saved in the Old Testament, God expected the same thing from you, obviously. Such a heart will obey in such a way that loves God. Um, and I, they do what they do because they love the Lord, not for religious show. In other words, a regenerate heart knows that true holiness is being like God and making him first in everything. It's not ritualism. It's not works. Again, uh, the uh, text that Jeff uh, uh, read for us uh, down here uh, in verse uh, 2 where he says, The one that I will look at and the one that I will regard, the one that pleases me is the humble and contrite in spirit. Trembles at my word. Which again, it's, it's what Jesus is saying here. The one that pleases God is the one who is humble within. And then he, he contrasts with those who were, uh, their religion was an outward show. So he says, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. Now what he's not saying there is that killing an animal is a murder. That's just as bad as killing a human being. That's not what he's saying at all. Talk about one who is in obedience to the law, is bringing an ox. He says, but if you're doing it, not because you are worshiping God, you're doing it to be seen, you're doing it for, for some selfish reason, then it's, he sees that as a, as a sin, just as if you murdered somebody. It's, it's a sin. It's not, it's not pleasing to the Lord. So a sacrifice in a lamb is one who breaks a dog's neck. A, you might break the neck of a lamb uh, in, to kill him, but uh, the point is that breaking a dog's neck, a dog is an unclean animal. So you're, you're bringing a lamb, which you should, but you're doing it with the wrong motivation, so you might as well bring an unclean animal. And, and he goes on offering grain, like offering pig's blood, of course, which would be a, a completely contrary to the, to the law, and so forth. And so that's what he's talking about there, because these have chosen their own ways and their soul delights and their abominations. They're out cheating people, killing people, committing adultery, uh, worshiping idols. But then they come at the right time and they're bringing their offering to the Lord and thinking everything's okay. And it'll show that they're hypocrites and, and God wants none of it. And so, so this is, I think, how we are to understand certainly what Jesus is saying. Now, I've said that acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy is a prerequisite prerequisite for salvation. But I need also to say that it is a prerequisite for Christian living. We need to be very careful that we don't say to ourselves that now that I'm saved, that I am no longer uh, in deficit. I'm no longer bankrupt. I've come to my senses. You know, the, the book of Deuteronomy I think answers this, where God says to the Israelites, when you come to the land, you remember this, we went, we went through that, God, God says to the Israelites, when you enter the land, you're going to uh, inhabit farms that you didn't uh, grow anything, you didn't begin these farms, you didn't plant them, but you're going to, you didn't build the houses and the barns, but you're going to inhabit them. And you're going to enjoy the fruit of somebody else's labor. 
And he says, be careful that you don't at some point say, wow, this is really cool, cool. you know, look what I've done. You know, as you're eating the, the fruit of these orchards that you didn't plant, and you come to say to yourself, you know, this is because of, you know, I'm, I'm somebody, God must really like me. I, I deserve this. And he says, you forget that you didn't get, you didn't work for any of that. It was a gift. You see, and then, and that speaks, again, I think, to the Christian life. It, you know, we understand we're saved by grace, but then all of a sudden, we get saved and become, become a little full of ourselves. And we think, well, I'm better than that person, and I'm pretty good. And we treat each other, you know, you're not as good as I am, and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. We lose our humility. And uh, we need to understand that that's something we need to be very careful about. We're, we're never at a point where we're not um, needy of the grace of God. And so the true Israelite, the remnant, always saw their inability to keep the law, and to humble themselves, to look for God's substitutionary atonement on their behalf as best they understood it. Now, the others took a slightly different approach. You know, they saw the law, which is referred to as the Torah, as something given to them to obey in order to be accepted by God. That's, that's kind of how it developed over the centuries. And they saw the old covenant as their salvation, the same thing, right? Obedience is, is how they're saved. And so over the centuries, they would pile up these interpretations and traditions, um, uh, commentaries, into this whole system of works. And that's what uh, is called the Talmud. If you ever you know, see that word Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D, that's Judaism. That's taking the Old Testament and making something out of it that was never meant to be. And so when Christ comes along, teaching what true salvation really is, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they end up killing them because it wasn't according to their traditions among other things. But by putting spiritual humility first, Jesus says that the door to the kingdom is a low door. You've got to stoop down if you're going to get in that door. You cannot be filled until you are empty. You cannot live until we admit that we are dead. We cannot be worthy until we understand that we are unworthy. Where self is exalted, Christ cannot be. Where he is king, we are not. And again, it's not that we have to, in ourselves, make ourselves unworthy or understand it. He's got to give us that revelation. He's got to regenerate us before we'll ever do any of that. So what the Bible teaches us is that we cannot attain on our own this poorness of spirit. You know, because if, if you can't make yourself poor, you've got to understand that you were born that way. You are innately poor. If we could humble ourselves and accept Christ in our own definition, we wouldn't have to be poor in spirit. Because you would actually have something to boast about. But God makes us humble as he opens up our eyes to his glory and our sinfulness. Because truth humbles. Once the, once the light is shines upon us, we understand who we are. So you can't talk yourself into it. You can't give all your money away to attain it. All such actions only make you proud. It forces you to compare yourself with somebody else. Humility can only come when we see ourselves in light of the transcendent holy God. So you study him and be wary of those things that exalt man if you want to be truly humble.
You live in dependence of God's word. You obey in all things. See, someone who doesn't take God's word seriously is not humble. Who don't think, who thinks that you know something better than the Lord, you're not humble. You are, and you, you can say you are outside the kingdom of God. Only the poor in spirit will desire to do this. That's the character of the saints. So how do we, and this is in closing, how do we know if we are poor in spirit? How do you work on humility? That's a iffy thing. Because as soon as you think you're humble, you, you are. You, you are, right? So, as soon as you, you think you found it, you lose it. But the Bible has lists of both sins and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And while spiritual pride is always a danger, the Bible does make it clear that we are to look at ourselves and see if these things be. As we read the Beatitudes, do, is this describing us? Not perfectly. But do we, do we see some evidence that this is who we are. So let me just close very briefly with um, a, a list of, of some things. That's, that's a quote I just quoted, so I didn't get to it, so I should have put it up there for you. But just some evidence of being poor in spirit. First of all, have we lost preoccupation with self? And again, this is something we will struggle with to the day we die. But I know, in my heart, I know that I'm not what matters. It's Christ that matters. And I know it's God's people that matters. And I know that I'm not any more important than anybody else. Whether I speak that like that and live like that as I should, well, my wife can tell you I don't always, right? But I know in my heart, this is true, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of Man who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said that because that's what Christians believe and are. Secondly, are you quite satisfied to live for Christ alone, or must your wants come first for you to be happy? Yeah, we all struggle with being content when we don't have things our flesh wants. But do we know that at the end of the day, I need Christ and and we, our prayer is that, Lord, if you take those things away, that I will be content with you alone. Thirdly, are you content to suffer tribulation and afflictions, knowing that Christ is perfecting us through them, as we talked about earlier? Because that's what um, Christianity is. It is the church being persecuted for the glory of God. Fourthly, will you gladly honor others before yourself, or must you always get the glory? And to be honest, I've seen some people in the church, not this church, but in Christianity, that it seems like if they don't get the glory, you know, they don't want, they don't have any part of it. They've got to have it. And that's a, that's a scary thing. Fifthly, do we spend our time begging from God or from this world? You see. Sixthly, is God's word the rule of your lives or this world's word? Again, do you listen to the political correct crowd or for, to the, uh, things of this world more than you do God's word? Where do you take your clue, clues from? What influences you the most? And then lastly, do we continually praise God for all things and in all things? And that's just a short list really though of, of an idea when Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit. There's, that's, there's the kingdom of God. And it means something. If you've got to be born again to enter the kingdom of God, some change has got to t- has taken place. And I hope that 
this is true of all of us, and that these are the things that we are working on as we go forth in God's kingdom. All right, we'll stop there today. Any? All right, be careful on the roads, and we'll see you, Lord willing, next week. Thank <clears throat> you.